Welcome to this episode of We Believe You, advocacy, resources, and healing around interpersonal trauma. I'm Casey. And I'm Jessica. And I'm Marie. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 10, The Power of a Story. I'm Casey from the Women and Gender Advocacy Center. And in this episode, I'll explore the importance and healing nature of storytelling. We will begin with a brief history of oral storytelling and how this idea can be powerful reclamation for survivors' experiences. The WGAC offers several ways for survivors to engage in storytelling, which are discussed and explored throughout this episode. The power and importance of storytelling has a deeply rooted significance in many communities, and especially in communities of color. This was how information was passed down. Today, oral history with these communities remains vital. Storytelling can be a powerful method of communication, but it also has historically been viewed by people in power as an illegitimate way of sharing information. As history is often written by people in power, read white, upper-class men, and thus created from a place of white supremacy, this master narrative is so often invalidating of experiences and histories of many minoritized communities. It makes clear that certain voices and experiences are seen as more valid than others. In Paula Aboud's TED Talk on healing through storytelling, she talks about the act of telling a story as both painful and emancipatory. How storytelling allows time to process when that time was stolen from us during trauma. It's a place to begin healing. Violence, racism, and other forms of oppression can destroy capacity for self-extension. It can strip a person of their voice. By self-expression, I mean the ability to understand what happened to you. Extend that knowledge to the fact that this happens to others. And have the capacity to do something about it by sharing a story. We need to remember that what we have to say is relevant and has value. Abu talks about how story work, when done in a nurturing environment, has the capacity to reconnect us with ourselves, to take us beyond the boundaries of our bodies and into the external world. She describes it as an act of resistance against invisibility, against forgetfulness, resistance against the demands to be quiet and to integrate into master narratives. For survivors, what does it mean to speak about your experience? It can be scary to even think about starting, and I'm in no way saying that all survivors must share their story. It's deeply personal, and each survivor will make up their own mind about when, how, if they decide to share. And for survivors who are ready to share their story with friends, through writing, or even publicly, I repeatedly hear the same themes. For some, the act of sharing helps solidify the experience as real. I've had survivors share that before they told their story, it was like they could pretend it didn't happen or it wasn't a big deal. But the act of sharing can help make the experience real so that it can become part of their history instead of the whole of who they are. I've also had survivors tell me that they share the story in an effort to let others know that they're not alone so that other survivors can hear that their experience isn't singular. They don't have to feel that no one will understand their hurt. They share to build community of support for those that are feeling isolated and alone. They share to cultivate the power of a collective voice, to provide a space to connect the deeply personal with the profoundly political, creating a collective community change. Think about the Me Too movement. It started way back in 1997 by a woman named Tarana Burke, when she was left speechless by a 13-year-old story about experiencing violence. She created the phrase to rally support for survivors of abuse. She fought systems for decades when very few people were listening. Then last year, the phrase was picked up by actress Alyssa Milano to create a community around sexual harassment 
and abuse in the entertainment industry. It took off and became what we know it today, a space for people to name harassment and abuse that they have experienced. That hashtag has given voice to those who previously felt alone. It has brought down men who were previously untouchable. It has created social change to say that we will no longer sit quiet and submit to this abuse. But this movement isn't without flaws. Tarana Burke is a black woman who was fighting for survivors when few people were. It wasn't until Alyssa Milano, a white woman with considerable power and resources, used the phrase that we as a collective society began to listen. I name this here to highlight that the strong tradition of oral histories and communities of color and how they aren't legitimized in a broader lens until a white person takes the idea for their own. It's a present-day example of the history we talked about a little bit ago. So far, this podcast has focused on the history and wider context. And I want to shift to talking about how this idea of storytelling comes up for us at the WGAC. And I want to start that by highlighting an experience we embarked upon this year. We took seven survivors to a farm in Palisade, Colorado for five days, and they had a community where they could laugh and be pissed off and know that everyone understood that healing is complex and not always sad. But they didn't enter into this experience without reservation. So many of this group voiced not feeling that what happened to them was bad enough to warrant taking up a space on this trip. They also said that they were nervous to be in a group for five days because people are so hard to be around. But at the end, they all said that they never knew other people could inherently understand their emotions. They didn't know there was a space where they didn't need to explain why they felt and reacted the way they did. They also reported feeling a relief for a space where they didn't need to minimize what happened to them, to apologize for expressing hurt, and to be accepted as their whole self. What you will hear now are the stories that came out of this trip. We will play each of these stories for you to hear. These stories are shared with enthusiastic permission from the survivor who created them. And while all of the content we share on this podcast is difficult material to listen to, I want to give a specific trigger warning on this content before we start. Find a way to take care of yourself while you listen. Listen at a time and a space that you find comfort in. And hopefully, when you listen, you can find that you're not alone. That support is possible. Because while each of these stories represent trauma... Each person who had that experience has also laughed and cried and channeled the rage into creating a community that they can heal in. We begin with a story that Abigail Bierce created, entitled Mountain Girl. A man pulled me into the dark woods, towering over me like the mountains themselves, ominous like storm clouds and strong from months of fighting wilds and fires. He choked me against a tree, slithered his tongue down my throat, released me and stepped back in appraisal of his capture. I turned to run, only to have him snatch my arm and throw me against the ground. I hit my head on granite. My mind went black, then faded, in and out. I woke up to warm sun on my devastated, bloody, bruised body, smaller than small. My childhood backdrop. America's mountain, Pikes Peak. I spent my days climbing trees, digging for worms, stalking wildlife, Hiking, camping, and chasing the sun behind mountains. Inside, things were not as pristine. Imprisoned by the chaos of alcoholism, which ran rampant through our home, I found freedom and power in majestic mountain peaks, rolling landscapes and expansive blue skies. In high school, I felt like a square peg in a round hole. Alcohol quickly replaced my desire to conquer mountain peaks. 
I thought it was something I could control until it controlled me. My first summer of college, I interned with a U.S. Forest Service Wilderness Trail Restoration Crew. The perfect opportunity to heal, escape alcohol's suffocating grip, and chase the powerful perspectives offered above 13,000 feet. I wasn't conquering the mountains for myself. I was helping other people get there, too. But the night the man pulled me into the dark woods, I questioned if the mountains had become a hostile, confining place, too. If I couldn't feel tall, I didn't want to feel anything at all. I returned to the chase of alcohol and drugs and soon found myself in chaotic oblivion. With a sedated mind, I watched a friend shake and heave on the brink of death. Was I her? Was she me? Not sure. I could barely breathe. In bitter realization that I had given my control to substances, I crawled to the shower, sulking in a deteriorating body, hoping scalding water would sanitize another night's sins. The cleanse I found was greater. My spirit cried out for serenity, sanity, relief. The goddess of light filled the cracks of my soul. I never became the towering, immortal mountain peak I longed to be. I became the path, every step and every breath. I am wildflowers changing with elevation, dusty boot prints, grueling heat, trickling streams, illuminating sunsets, false summits, and ever-changing views. These are still my lands to protect. The next is Kimberly Breslin and her story, Dear Grandpa. Dear Grandpa, I was born in the place where the earth meets the sky, a place where stars gaze back and where laughter is your first language and love your second. You tried to steal that, tried to steal my light. Dear Grandpa, why did you rape me? Why did you tear my soul into long winding ribbons? Why did you corner me in bathrooms, lock me in bedrooms, throw me in closets? Did you like the look of my terror? Did you like the feel of blood, the taste of my tears? Dear Grandpa, when you raped me for hours, my blood spilling over the tiled bathroom floor, did it feel good to know I wanted to die? Did it give you pleasure when you pressed the knife to my throat and asked me to beg for my life? And instead, I begged you to end it. Did you enjoy being a monster? Did you enjoy driving an eight-year-old to beg for death? Dear Grandpa, why does my stomach often turn like rolling dice? Why do I look for you in people's eyes? So many after you have used and abused and raped me. Did you brand me? Mark me as rapable? Dear Grandma, why didn't you save me? My nightmares are filled with the click of locked doors and the sound of footsteps walking away. Maybe blood can be mistaken for a coat, scars mistaken for tattoos, tears mistaken for allergies, and false smiles mistaken for happiness. 
Invisibility is a powerful weapon against destruction. Amnesia, a powerful weapon against the truth. Dear Grandpa, did it make you feel powerful? Knees pressed against the witness stand as I told a room full of strangers the horrors you made me face. Did it turn you on to get away with it? Do you still wake up to the sounds of my screams? I do. Dear Grandpa, did you like making me feel worthless, unlovable? Did you enjoy the fact that I was beyond saving? Too bad you could never guess that after seven years in your grasp, I had the power to save myself. Grandpa, your family may have chose you, but my family chose me. You never broke me. I have been loved, truly loved. I have found an unshakable power in my own voice, a beauty in my loneliness, a fight in my soul. I am everything you are not, for only love can drive out hatred, and I am that love. The power I possess is unimaginable, because even though you won many battles, you never won this war. This is Theo McFarlane telling his story, written on the body. Trauma, like poetry, is written on the body. You noticed me. I was bound with the kind of lamination you find in a library, faded and cracked, and you were the first to borrow me. The feel of your lips on my cheek was everything slowly unraveling the threads of my cover to remake me into something new, something yours, something pretty. Pretty until it wasn't. You began to rewrite me, until the scrawl of your handwriting ran red, until the pages were torn and dog-eared, until I was returned broken and empty. If this story needed a villain, no one wanted it to be you. So I buried you between the seraphs of my sentences, just a few razor-thin strike-throughs to cover you up, to control you. I sought to edit you from the pages of my body, until I became less like a novel and more like a first draft, more like the topic sentence of an MFA thesis, until there was less than a hundred pages of me, until I tried to edit myself out too. Everything about the book of my body was wrong, and I couldn't tell if it was because of you or because I realized Mars orphaned me on Venus, but either way, I thought I might have to just cut it all out. I gained a few new subtitles, just some editing suggestions to put words to wordless things, but they helped a little, just a little. 
I realize that writing a book is much harder than it seems, especially when the words seem wrong and the text doesn't fit the pages. But I met someone I might want to kiss for the rest of my life, and no, it wasn't you. I refuse to let anyone else narrate for me any longer. I dedicate you to the margins where you belong, since I know your mark on this story is permanent and I'd like to keep an eye on you. Besides, I'm writing the story now, and I've decided to make myself the protagonist. My body speaks trauma like dynamite. Pain. Noun. Meaning volatile. Explosive, meaning chaos, unpalatable. Survivor, verb, meaning to write on the body, meaning to be. This is Victoria Benjamin telling her story, Shadows. It was an ordinary day in late December when he hurt me again. His rage had left marks on my body countless times before. As I cradled my broken hand, with my own blood dripping from my lashes, I looked around me. My five-year-old daughter, my love, my treasure, was sitting in a corner with her head on her knees. Her tiny hands covered her ears, and she was screaming. My four-year-old daughter moved in front of me in a protective stance, and my 18-month-old son glanced about himself in utter confusion. My gaze flew back to my husband. He was bellowing at me, at our children, and his face twisted up in a horrifying grimace that reignited my fear. I felt the overwhelming gravity of that moment move inside of me, the tendrils pulsing through the child that grew in my womb. I was witnessing the trauma of abuse wind its way into the souls of my young children, joining countless other pains of living under the oppression of anger and familial violence. I recognized a need for escape. It had never been enough to leave for me because I felt deserving of the chaos and pain of a lifetime. I knew I must leave for them to save my children from becoming one of us, either the devil or the woman who lived in hell. Less than a year later, I was an underemployed single mother. We had no one, no family, no friends, no support. It was only me and these four souls I was responsible for. I was driving to work and witnessed an incredibly beautiful sunrise. Gratitude filled the entirety of my being. In that moment, I felt truly and vibrantly alive. I had escaped my circumstances, but the shadow remained. That sunrise reminded me that the time before was over and our time had begun. I understood 
that I had been given a second chance to save myself, to be a better mother to my children, and to live a life worth remembering. I was dead once, but in that moment, while gazing at the peace and beauty of the goddess, I finally, finally, found the strength to resurrect myself from the dead. This is Oliver Adams telling his story, Named. I was seven. He was 11. He asked if I was his girlfriend. I said no. He shoved his hands down my pants, saying, If you're not my girlfriend, then how come I can do this? I got away and said you can't. He still sees me as his. He asked me questions he sought to answer himself. He gave to me a name I never agreed to carry. I packed it up and put it away, but still, I wondered, did I lead him on? Am I just being extra? I was 18. We made out and ended up in my bedroom. He kissed me onto my roommate's bed. Do you care? He answered for me. No, you don't. I refused to do anything on a bed that was not my own. He called me a bitch. I watched him put on the condom. At some point in the darkness and the shuffling of bodies, he took it off. I asked what type of condom it was. He said ultra-thin. I turned on the light and made him put on another one. He did it again. After I told him he couldn't sleep here, he called me a monster. He gave to me names I never agreed to carry. The next morning, I asked myself questions I never thought I would again. Was the sex just bad? Am I just being extra? Why does this hurt so much? Am I just a bitch? Why isn't anyone else saying it? And then somebody said it. That was molestation. That was rape. You, I was sexually assaulted. This is the first time I've named it for myself. I was molested. I was raped. This is the first time I've named myself. I am a survivor. This is Kaylin Jensen telling her story, A Hand-Me-Down Graveyard. Dear man who raped my sister, when I heard your story the first time, my bones clamored. A silverware drawer when it is shut too hard. She, 
sat against the redwood fence with her head between her knees, eyes open. It watched her heart hit the sand and sink. This is a poem about numbers you read to my sister that was nine years ago and I still can't go eight steps from my front door for fear of becoming the ninth survivor I have loved. I only met you once, but your silhouette is framed by every bedroom door. You were the first of seven, some of whom I once counted as friends. My sister's mascara still draws birdcage bars across my breast, and I still walk lopsided. So many tear-stained faces weigh heavy upon my shoulder. Your presence in this world is like leprosy for the soul, airborne by your laughter. You haunt me. She, the prey of your dreams, I, the prey in my nightmares. Eight steps doesn't get me out of this house or past that room, so I don't take walks. Your shadow lingers in the lamplight and the window and the mirror, and I am still staring between my legs, loving those I could not protect from men like you, wondering how many men walk beside me. How many men are standing too close behind me when I go to sleep, I take my keys. I tuck them between my fingers, cold and hard and sharp. We will not roll over for you. You are the dog. Don't call us bitches, dear man who raped my sister. I was just ten when you hurt her. Her soul, your subjugation my mess. I drag these skeletons around with me. None of them are mine, but I love them, so I will let them rattle around with the fragments of this heart, dear man, who raped my sister. I wish you could know how heavy these bones are. This is Allie Kempf telling her story, Progress. Sometimes I wake up and for a split second I forget what happened. A hook doesn't simply give way when pulled. It will stretch, pull, tear, and rip flesh. It will not give way unless it takes part of you with it. My perpetrator hooked himself into the most vulnerable parts of my body and mind. He used them to coerce me into sex, to make me fearful, and to take possession of my identity. As much as it burned to be with him, the ripping as I tried to run was far more excruciating. I always believed that it was all my fault. One night, he stood over me, cowering on the floor. You're the most toxic person I have ever met, he uttered. It was the final piece for him to claim. I was no longer the kind and compassionate person I knew myself to be. He stripped me of that. I called my friend in hysterics. When I climbed into his car and tried to stammer through why I was hysterical, the definitions fell into place. Psychological abuse. Coercion. Rape. The moment I said it out loud, I felt all the pain he had caused all at once. It took a long time to distance myself, to start mending the holes where his hooks had been. Where I stumbled as I learned to love myself again, the love of others carried me. Softly repeating, it's not your fault as I sobbed. 
filling my belly with warm food when I couldn't bring myself to eat, laughing until 2 a.m. Their love was ice on my bruises and a tourniquet on my heart. I can go without my phone now. I can sleep with my door open. I use the word partner. I've stopped thinking of myself as property. I don't say I'm sorry as often. When I do, it's not to protect myself. How do you tell the ones who deserve you that you miss the one who hurt you? The hooks may be gone, but the pain from tearing away is still white and blinding. I can't explain why I still blame myself, why I still question whether what happened was really that bad, whether I truly deserve to be healing. I will never be the same. That's okay, because even if there's days his hooks still burn, I wake up every day and for a second I forget what happened. The next day I will forget for a minute. The next I will forget until evening. And someday I will wake up and forget for weeks. These stories are beyond powerful, and many will have found them hard to listen to. But for students who can put words to their experience, they describe the process as a means of healing and acceptance. These stories are also available in video format on the WGAC website. It's my hope that by listening to these stories, survivors were able to find understanding, support, and healing. For those of you listening who are seeking knowledge and understanding from a support role, I hope that you are able to listen reflectively. Really listen. It's how we build community. It's how we learn to say, enough is enough. These behaviors will no longer be tolerated. It's empathy in action. Having someone share their story with you is a gift that comes with responsibility. The responsibility to believe the story you are hearing. To not minimize or explain away parts of the story that make you feel uncomfortable. At the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, we believe in building community and understanding through stories. And we strive to provide opportunities for survivors to do just that. You have just listened to one of the ways we have engaged in this work, through our Alternative Spring Break program. But we also provide support and opportunity through our Survivor Speakers Bureau. This is a group of survivors who wish to tell their stories in order to educate and raise awareness about the effects of interpersonal violence. After attending a two-hour orientation, members of this group can sit on a panel for classrooms, student organizations, programs, and conferences to help others find understanding. If you or someone you know is interested in participating in this opportunity, please email us at wgac at colostate.edu. Another way to put voice to story is a program called Take Back the Night. The name Take Back the Night has been used in connection to raising awareness of violence against women since the 1970s. Take Back the Night was used as a title of a 1977 spoken word piece read by Anne Pride at an anti-violence rally in Pittsburgh. Laura Letter named her 1980 book Take Back the Night. This book analyzed the issue of violence against women. In 2001, Take Back the Night Foundation was formed as a hub for information sharing, resources, and support for both survivors and event holders. Today, Take Back the Night events are held worldwide to share stories of sexual and dating violence. At CSU, we hold our annual event in April as part of our Sexual Assault Awareness Month. The event begins with a survivor speakout, where participants can take the stage and share the story on their terms. 
after the speak out, we march through Fort Collins with chants of solidarity and activism. It's so powerful to watch. The event culminates with a keynote speaker in Old Town Square who rallies the audience to think about what comes next and how to stay active in the anti-violence movement. For more information about the International Take Back the Night Foundation, go to takebackthenight.org. If you're thinking about sharing your story in a less public way, the WGAC can help with that as well. We have several different groups that we offer that can help build support and community on a smaller scale. We hold a weekly support group where survivors can share and talk about what's coming up for them and where they can help each other understand and find shared experiences. We also offer an eight-week The Body and the Mind group that explores how a person can store trauma in their physical body and how they can release that trauma. Finally, we offer a workshop for secondary survivors as a way for support people to be able to find community around the effects of vicarious trauma. As we wrap up, I want to name that sharing story doesn't have to be done with the WGAC or through a system. It doesn't even have to be verbal. There are many different ways to share a story. You can try writing down your story in a journal or a short story. Talking to a friend about your experience is also cathartic and healing. You can use creativity to draw, paint, or take pictures that help to express this emotion. Spoken word, music, dance, these are all ways in which stories are shared and passed down. The possibilities are endless. While this podcast showed you one form of storytelling, I hope that sharing story can become or remain a form of personal empowerment and community building for you. So that's all for this episode of We Believe You, Advocacy, Resources, and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. Please remember that the WGAC is here to provide support for all CSU students 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. To reach an advocate, you can call 970-492-4242. If you have thoughts, feedbacks, comments, questions, or want to be interviewed for the podcast, please email us at wgac at colostate.edu. That's wgac at c-o-l-o-s-t-a-t-e dot edu. For more information about advocacy and the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, go to www.wgac.colostate.edu. You can also find the WGAC on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. A big thank you to Xavier Havley for creating music used in this podcast and to our partnership with KCSU here at Colorado State University. For more KCSU content, go to kcsufm.com. Thank you so much for listening.